Welcome to Behind the White Coat Podcast. I am your host, Eric Malara, a first-year medical student. Today's episode is going to be a little bit different. I've normally been interviewing medical students and physicians who receive their undergraduate degree, medical degree, and residency training here in the U.S., and today's guest received his medical degree in Canada, but I just thought his story and experience is too important not to interview him. So today's guest is Dr. Robert Krell, a professor emeritus of psychiatry at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. He is a child survivor of the Holocaust and has devoted his life to the treatment of Holocaust survivors and their families. Dr. Krell was born in The Hague, Holland on August 5th, 1940. He survived the war in hiding with the Munich family and returned to his parents who also survived in hiding. In 1951, the Krells moved to Vancouver, British Columbia, and Dr. Krell earned his medical degree from the University of British Columbia in 1965 and completed his psychiatric training at Temple University Hospital in Philadelphia and also at Stanford University in Palo Alto, California. In his private practice, Dr. Krell treated Holocaust survivors and their families as well as Dutch survivors of Japanese concentration camps. He established a Holocaust education program for high school students in 1976, which was an audio-visual documentation program recording survivor testimony in 1978 and assisted with the formation of child survivor groups starting in 1982. He also established a Holocaust education center in 1994 in order to continue teaching programs for high school children as a warning of the consequences of unchecked racism and intolerance. For these activities, Dr. Krell received the 1998 Elie Wiesel Remembrance Award. Dr. Krell continues to write and speak on Holocaust-related topics. So please join me as I interview and learn from Dr. Krell's story today. Yeah, so let's just start with uh, the beginning. Sure. My name is Robert Krell, K-R-E-L-L. And uh, I was born in The Hague, Holland, early August 1940. Uh, the Netherlands had already been uh, invaded and occupied by the Germans. Uh, and I was told that the uh, hospital in which I was born, uh, a piece of it had already been requisitioned by the Gestapo. Uh, so I was... Uh, I came into the world under dangerous times, and uh, of course I was a, a Jewish child. We were uh, at risk uh, from the beginning, but we did not yet know how bad it was to become. Uh, so the first two years, of course, are out of my awareness and filled in by others. Rules and regulations uh, against the Dutch citizens of Jewish descent uh, came uh, rapidly and were ominous. Uh, for example, uh, Jews were not allowed to own anything like bicycles, radios. Uh, they could shop only in the late afternoon when there was really nothing left to shop for. Jews were not allowed to sit on park benches or go to the beach. The restrictions were uh, quite incredible when you, when you think about them. Uh, but somehow or other, uh, everyone managed until uh, the worst began to happen, which no one could foresee. Uh, the 
when I was two years old, uh, by August 19th, 1942, uh, we, we received papers uh, to present ourselves to a so-called collection place, the collection place of people, uh, to be taken to um, a transit camp called Westerbork in northern Holland. And uh, Westerbork turned out to be uh, the transit facility uh, for Jews to be deported to uh, basically two camps, Auschwitz and Sobibor. Of course, in mid-August, uh, no one knew anything very much, but my father had obviously noted that uh, many of his friends had disappeared and he had not heard from them again. So he knew that uh, presenting oneself uh, was leading to some disaster. It was called resettlement to the east. Uh, everyone assumed that uh, that might be uh, labor, forced labor for the Germans. Uh, no one knew uh, that this led to death camps uh, at Sobibor. People were murdered within three hours of arrival. It was a true extermination camp. At Auschwitz, people might live a little longer if they were selected for labor purposes and then work to death within three months. Um, because of his suspicions that something was terribly wrong, uh, we fled our house within an hour or so uh, of receiving the letter to report uh, and uh, scrambled for hiding places. Uh, I was extremely lucky. A place I ended up in temporarily for a couple of weeks while my mother found, uh, looked for a place, uh, was visited by a uh, Mrs. Munich, M-U-N-N-I-K. She came on her social visit to this friend. Uh, that was an annual visit. That's how rare these visits were. She asked about me. The lady who was looking after me said, that's a little Jewish boy named Olikel, and uh, we're keeping him, but uh, we can't keep him very long because we ourselves are being sent out to the countryside. That was the fate of older people within the city, to be removed from the city. And uh, she said, I'll take him for a while while his mother searches some more. And she took me in and kept me nearly three years. Uh, so I became Hobby Munich. I was given a, a new identity. It's at the time that I was uh, given over to her that my memory kicks in. So I have a memory that goes back to about age two and a half. Uh, people say that children can't remember. <clears throat> Not true. Um, uh, the reason children can't remember is that basically memory has something to do with uh, events that are worth remembering. So if your early life as a child is a good life, I later as a psychiatrist would ask, psychiatrist would ask someone age 30 or 35, what is your first memory? They could take you back to age six when they started school, age five when they went on a family picnic or celebrated a birthday. But if they did not have surgery or trauma, something major in their lives, they couldn't recapture much from age two, three, four, five. Obviously, I was a traumatized child who, being separated uh, from his mother and father, 
uh, around age two, began to remember certain things. So I remember my father's last visit, not knowing what would be his last visit, of course, not having knowledge of the context of what was happening. These are fragments and pieces of a child's memory. I remember him visiting and teaching me no longer to call him father. Don't call me dad, call me uncle. Because in Holland, uncle could be attributed to someone who's close to the family, but isn't family. And that was his way of teaching me not to identify him. Mm. So I remember that. So I came into the Minnick family. Albert Manick, Violetta Manick, and their daughter, Nora, who was 10 years older than I. So at age two, I got a 12-year-old sister uh, who was uh, absolutely delighted to have a little brother. And so she looked after me. So again, I was very fortunate. Uh, she, of course, had to be taught to be quiet about my presence because she is a Dutch Christian girl had a reasonably normal life in that she went to school every day, right? Uh, my father, Mr. Munich, who went to work. My mother was a housewife and looked after me with much love. So I was fine, except for it was not fun. Even my near-perfect type of hiding was still off the scale. Why? Um, I had to stay away from windows. I could not be seen. I was a black-haired, curly kid. Curly-haired kid uh, in a sea of blondes. And there were traitors living across the street, known Nazi collaborators. Uh, besides that, you never knew who would betray you, who would betray a Jewish child. You probably are somewhat familiar with the Anne Frank story. They managed in hiding for over two years and still ended up being betrayed and everyone was murdered except for Otto Frank who returned. Um, of, of an estimated 24,000 Jewish children in hiding, over half or more ended up being betrayed. Uh, so I must have picked up a sense of danger and so I grew into a very um, compliant, cooperative child. I did not uh, complain of illness, uh, so I actually don't remember illness because it was something that I dismissed, which affected me much later in life because as a physician who should have known better, I once walked around for a week with a ruptured appendix from feeling that I never complained before. I don't complain now either, and so uh, I dismiss illness until it puts me down. And uh, I never cried. So uh, uh, we must know what uh, little boys are like at age two, three, four. They're boisterous, curious, intrusive, and uh, sometimes very uncooperative. I was the opposite of all of that. We, we made it, which was quite extraordinary because uh, my mother was on her own hiding in a small apartment on false papers, Swiss forgeries. Uh, my father was in the attic as a partner in the fur business. He made it, but no one else did. 
their parents, my grandparents were all murdered. Their sisters, brothers, my aunts and uncles were all murdered. And so all that was left at the end of the war in 1945 was uh, we three uh, and one first cousin, the son of uh, my father's sister's family. And, uh, and that was it. And then, of course, I had my second major drama, and that is the time I did cry. And that was I had to leave the Munich. So I, I now thought I was Robbie Munich, and I had to go back to my Dutch Jewish family, which I did. And they were uh, all pretty wonderful about that because they became the best of friends after the war and kind of shared me. So if my parents went on a trip, on a vacation, I would automatically just pack my suitcase, run over to the Munichs and move there. And Dr. Krell, how did the Munichs explain the situation to you when you were a child of not standing next to the window or having to be in hiding? Did they just tell you that you're being persecuted? Like, how do you even explain that to a child? Uh, well, you don't. You don't. I, I, think, <clears throat> I think you just act uh, within the framework of what you think is safe. Remember that, that in 1942, when the deportations started, an average Dutch family, like they were, they were smart, but they were simple. They were simple in accepting me. They asked no questions. They did not know what risks they were taking at the time. That only unfolded later. But at the time, they knew I could not be discovered. And so... It, it was simply an action of theirs. Well, we stay away from the window. As a child, I obeyed. I didn't ask for what reason. I looked out the window and I saw German soldiers in the park in front of our place, marching around, behaving badly, peeing on the walls of the other apartments, you know, generally desecrating everything. Uh, I needed to see to know that there was danger out there. I saw guns. And um, so when they said stay away from the window, I, uh, I just accepted that. But I, I, the question is a very good one because with that, I must have um, assumed some fear about the danger. And there was, was great danger. Nora, my sister, <clears throat> One day took me out in a buggy. It's the only time I was out. I must have been about three years old. Uh, why do I remember it? Well, I hadn't gone out. I hadn't gone out before. Um, uh, we encountered uh, uh, near a viaduct, which, which is partially underwater, a German soldier. I pulled the blankets over my face to hide because I knew I was in danger. From what? I wouldn't have been able to tell you, right? But I felt it. And I could still, I still had that sensation of feeling, pulling the blankets over me. He helped us get through the part of the viaduct that was under, underwater. Um, from there, I remember nothing. So 30, 40 years later, I'm talking to Nora. I say, Nora, where were you taking me? When I was in the buggy, she said, never happened. Young little boy, never happened. 
I said, oh, really? I said, it's clear as a bell in my memory. She says, I'm 10 years older. I was 13 if that happened, and I would have known better. I said, well, you're always smarter than me. That's true. You can't take that memory away from me. A week later, she called and said, you were right. I was taking you to your mother. Now, first of all, she wasn't even supposed to go where my mother was hiding. But it shows your kids can find out anything if they want to. I said, did we make it? Because I could not remember that. And she said, yes, we got there. And your mother prepared us a really good meal from what God only knows at that time. We were eating full of bombs. But she must have had some resources somehow. And that was the day that the Gestapo knocked on her little apartment door to search. And Nora and I ended up hiding under the bed. No wonder I don't remember. Trauma was too great. Uh, Nora was punished when we came back. Uh, apparently the way back was after curfew and it was very dangerous too. So I imbibed danger in my surroundings. Uh, never mind that I wouldn't have been able to explain it yet not having the vocabulary of the words. Uh, but those are the things that happened uh, that I remember. And so uh, we were lucky once again not to have been discovered because my mother was able to talk searchers out of searching uh, using her false papers and her uh, Swiss accent that she put on. Uh, yeah, we could have been caught at, at any time. Maybe I'll just finish off with the one story. Uh, we emigrated to Canada in 1951. I was nearly 11 years old. I went back in 1960 to Holland. And uh, of course, I'm knocking on the door of the place that where the monks lived and where I was hidden and uh, beyond. Excited about seeing my mother, and uh, as I'm knocking, the neighbor's door on the left opens, and he says, "Bobby, uh, is that you?" I said, "Yeah, many other face. Yes, many other face. It's me. Come back to see your mother." Of course, he said. You know, I'm deeply disappointed in you. I said, "Why would that be?" He says, you never thanked me for not betraying you. So it was in his mind. It was in his mind all that time. And betraying me would have meant betraying his neighbors and sentencing them to be sent to a concentration camp, if not shot on the street. What was his response to that? Uh, I, uh, I closed his door for him. You know what I mean. Mm -hmm. You've talked about the betrayal of European families on their Jewish neighbors. Why do you think your family took you in and didn't betray you as opposed to other neighbors? Why, why did the monks take me in? Mm -hmm. Well, um, like I said, they, they, they were um, simple folk, okay? Mm -hmm. down-to-earth people, and uh, as it has come out over the years in various studies and all, it's the, uh, it's, it's the thinkers, the intellectuals who uh, spend a lot of time making decisions, 
okay. Um, these are people who acted on the impulse of goodness. They were good, decent people. They saw a little child in potential trouble. They did not know how much trouble, uh, but they took me in. And uh, within a very short while, they loved me as a son. I was their little boy, and they would have, I, I think they, they would have accepted any fate that befell me. It was not a complicated series of thoughts about the possible dangers. From there on, they were in there to protect me. And uh, Mutter um, uh, had a, a remarkable quality, uh, which was that she always spoke the truth, but she lied like a trooper. For only one reason, that was to protect me. So she even lied about what she made me for dinner because when, she, when we were starving and she was making tulipos for dinner, she said, Hobie, but yours are potatoes. And I cooperated with that and I said, potatoes you made for me are fantastic. You were talking about how you got reunited with your Dutch Jewish family and you immigrated to Canada. So can you talk to me about that journey and what it was like to basically start a new life? Um, I, uh, I, was, I, I was the world's most eager immigrant. I would have won the Olympics of immigration. <laughs> uh, my parents explored uh, going to Israel, but my father was a furrier and he didn't think the fur business was too good in a hot country. Was right. Uh, I think there might be other reasons as well. Uh, then they uh, explored uh, Australia, and uh, um, I nixed that one. I didn't want to go to an island, no matter how big it was. And um, uh, then we got visas for the United States, and my father ended up giving those visas to his hiders, the overslopes, because they uh, they had lost faith. They were uh, Christians of strong faith, and they lost a lot of faith in their fellow Dutchmen who could not live there anymore. And so uh, we gave them our visas, and they went to uh, California, and they lived in Altadena, near Los Angeles. And um, uh, then we got, finally, we got visas to Canada, uh, and came in 1951 to Vancouver on a wonderful trip. We were on a freighter. Uh, that went directly to Vancouver. That means five weeks at sea going through the Panama Canal and up the coast, up, up the Pacific coast, where we stopped in L.A. and saw the Oversold family that rescued my dad and then went on to Vancouver and arrived here in uh, March of 1951. And uh, that actually was liberation for me. 1945, and it did not feel like liberation. It's May 5th, 1945, that Holland was liberated. But for a Jewish family, beyond being out of immediate danger, it didn't feel much like liberation because it was in those months after that that we discovered that everything was gone, everyone was gone, friends, family. There was nothing left. It just seemed a place of death, really. And I wanted to get out of there. 
So I was, I was very excited. You've talked about memory and how people say two-year-olds or three-year-olds don't have memory, but that's usually based on children who haven't experienced trauma. Did your parents ever talk about their memory and their experience? My question being the difference between a child's memory of all this and an adult's memory. Well, yes, they, they talked of their fem of their uh, memories um, because uh, there, was, there were so many uh, incidents that took place after the war. Uh, as you know, uh, that uh, terribly tragic period has come to be known as the Holocaust. And the Holocaust never leaves you, ever. And if you try uh, to avoid the Holocaust, it will find you anyway. So the incidents that occurred after the war to my parents were constant reminders, people looking for them for certain reasons, either a few old friends uh, that returned from Auschwitz and made it back to uh, Holland. They all f found our living room together. They somehow knew the Krells hadn't left. So they came looking for us. So they came with their stories. And that's, these are the things that I heard as a child, their stories, which also have never left me. Mm -hmm. um, and then when we were in Canada, uh, there would be people visiting from Holland looking for him. Uh, a Dutchman in Australia was looking for him because he was accused of being a Nazi war criminal. And only my dad could clear his name because as it happens, he was the member, a member of the resistance in all of, and my father had his identity card. My father had not been caught as a Jew. He would have been caught as this fellow's identity as a resistance fighter. Either way, he would have been gone. His identity card would not have helped him. It would have endangered him. So he had to clear this fellow in Austria, in Australia, sorry. So these, yeah, these things kept happening. There were stories at the time. Another thing that, that had to do with memory was my determination uh, later in life to uh, begin audiovisual testimony of Holocaust survivors. And both my parents agreed to be interviewed. So there are uh, two-hour interviews of them and their memory. Can we actually talk a little bit more about that? I read that you interviewed and taped 120 survivor accounts, such as the one of your parents. Was there anything that you maybe learned from all of those accounts? With respect to survivor testimony and the patients who chose to come to see me who were survivors, uh, you are learning all the time. Uh, one of the things I learned as a, a student of psychiatry, I think well-trained in Philadelphia in psychodynamic psychotherapy and family therapy, is that uh, much of that which applies to conducting general psychiatric interviews are uh, not applicable to psychiatry with survivors, with Holocaust survivors. So you learn a lot from them. I've sometimes said that I think that in anything that I know 
um, has come from listening to survivors. They, they are uh, regretfully wise in in the areas of overwhelming trauma. Remember that, uh, uh, I don't know how familiar you are with, with psychiatry, but before, before World War II, um, psychoanalysts were very preoccupied uh, with children. And even a single trauma in childhood was by the psychiatrists and psychoanalysts of that time worthy of about five years of therapy. Bedwetters, mm -hmm. for example. Um, <clears throat> after the war, these same psychiatrists and psychoanalysts did not do want did, did not know what to do with this overwhelming trauma, because now they were facing children who had uh, problems that encompassed every area of security and safety. They experienced traumas uh, daily, nightly, weekly, monthly. It was a, a, a succession of unrelenting trauma. And so there was not even a vocabulary after the war to describe it. So the uh, pre-war psych psychologists and psychiatrists and psychoanalysts fell back on uh, analytic terminology. They used the concepts of guilt, wrong, totally lost sight of what trauma really is, but it is so massive uh, and could not deal with it. Uh, survivors taught me what I should know in order to assist them. And were these survivors all adult survivors or child survivors as well? Another uh, terrific question. I was I was known as a I was the director of child and family psychiatry at the UBC Health Sciences Hospital, and so I had a clinic. And in clinic, we saw kids and families. We were very family oriented. In my small private practice, um, Holocaust survivors began to seek me out. I had all the qualifications. I was Jewish. I was a child psychiatrist. Uh, I belonged to a survivor family. Mm -hmm. Okay? So they felt a degree of comfort and camaraderie. Um, and so they would come in and bring their children. And their children would have every disorder that any other child would have. They'd be depressed or have ADHD, learning disabilities. But there was a complication. They lived in a survivor family. And so I got very interested in both the children of survivors and their parents. And many of their parents ended up in therapy with me. They chose, after we dealt with some of the issues in their children, uh, to come. And they had very specific requests. They had requests like, uh, you know, can you take my memory away from me so I can sleep with them? Wow. And I had to deal with things like that. Uh, my response basically was, you would not want me to take away your memory. Because those, the awfulest memories that they had were the ones where they lost their parents. And I would say to them, you know, taking away your memory would also take away the, your last memory of your mom. Mm -hmm. 
We didn't want to do that. And we agreed to escape. And then we would talk. We would talk. We would get out the feelings of all of that. Because along with that, always went, I should have gone with my mother and died with her. My response, is that what your mother would have wanted for you? Mm-hmm. It changes the nature. Some would come in and say, Krell, I'll work with you on my stuff, but if I tell you I'm going to kill myself, don't stop me. My response? You've earned the right to decide whether you want to die or not. And then we get to work. Now the work was different. The work was different. I used maps, we would trace their journey through concentration camps and after and where they ended up and things. I'd have them write brief memoirs. If they said they weren't good enough in English, I'd say write them in the language you're most familiar with is Yiddish or German or Polish or whatever. We'll get them translated. We pursued restitution around the restitution, um, issues of justice come up. And uh, one time when I was reduced to tears after working with someone for two or three years on restitution, I got him $1,300. I felt so awful. What pittance for what this man went through. He lost eight, eight brothers and sisters. And he was in slave, slave labor in mines. It was the most awful story. They, they were all awful stories, but this was one the most awful. And I called them, I said, I apologize, you just sent me a letter, and it's $1,300 for all you went through. He says, can I see you tomorrow? He comes in smiling. First time, this very depressed man, with good, total good reason for depression, comes in and he's smiling. I said, you're looking good today. I feel awful, you're looking good. He says, they acknowledged I was there. Wow. So there you are, you learn. You learn. Dr. Krell, you've mentioned that you don't like to complain and not cry as a result of your upbringing and trauma. Are there any similarities that you saw with the survivors in terms of like not complaining or not crying? Oh, yes. Yes, absolutely. Well, uh, one, one sad thing about the older survivor who knew what was going on was that they, in part, they did not complain because no one listened to them. Um, they were not met in their displaced persons camps by psychiatrists and psychologists and social workers who would listen to them. There were people there who were trying to get them back to health, nurture them with food and do, uh, say, a lot of uh, social work type activities, but there were very few who uh, actually uh, listened to their stories. I know of one adolescent who was age 15 when he came out of Auschwitz, and he grabbed someone in, in, in the mental health service field and uh, said, uh, uh, let me tell you my story. He had a great need to tell. And that person said, not now. 
And he swore himself to a year of silence after that, and indeed did not speak for a year. So, so they, they were ignored. Uh, the other group you did, you did mention to me, uh, child survivors. Uh, yes, I, I see child survivors a little older than myself in most cases. I was born in 40. Um, our definition, uh, some colleagues and I define a child survivor as uh, 16 and under in 1945. So if you were born in Poland in 19, in, uh, uh, that was occupied for six years, um, could have experienced six years of persecution if you made it to the end. That's something that I didn't even think about was that the survivors just want to be heard and acknowledged. You mentioned your patient who received $1,300 for restitution. And so you listened to him and through those $1,300, he was acknowledged that he existed and then he went through all this. So is that true across the board that the survivors just wanted to be heard? Oh, very, very much so. So much so that um, even though many lost their faith, uh, some interestingly intensified their faith, coming back to Judaism and practicing it. Uh, but those, even those who lost their faith, uh, would settle in a place like we were and return to the Orthodox synagogue, interestingly enough, and form what I would call the nearest thing to a family grouping that you could get. Uh, so they could talk to each other because the established Jewish community that existed pre-war didn't have the time of day for us, right? We were like aliens coming into their domain. And, um, and so what happened was uh, the group of survivors became very, very close, centered around the kind of a collective meeting place, which was often a synagogue. Um, some prayed, many did not, but they talked with each other. They had the companionship of a common experience that was understood between them. And they also learned very quickly uh, not to talk uh, to the more general community who expressed basically very little interest. But that was partly because no one could handle what they were It also includes mental health professionals who said that the survivors were in denial. When you see the literature post-war, immediately post-war for the next 10, 15 years, it's about the, uh, the, the denial of the survivor who could not talk about their experiences. No, it was the denial of the therapist who could not listen. Talking about being a therapist, what were probably the hardest questions that you had to ask your patients? I think I was able to work with them partly because I had no fear of crying anymore. Uh, I could ask the hardest questions and steal myself, still not be prepared for the emotions uh, that would come. And I would cry with the patient over certain things. And anyone in psychiatry would say that is absolutely, you know, not acceptable. Uh, these situations were beyond understanding. They required 
that degree of sharing the subjective emotional experience of what that person went through. So I wasn't afraid to ask anything because I'd given myself license to suffer along with it. Uh, most psychiatrists who deal with people in trauma steal themselves and cannot step into the abyss I did. So, Dr. Kroll, I, a while ago I went to a Holocaust survivor's uh, lecture series, and it was the first time I ever heard a Holocaust survivor in person. This was back in maybe 2014, so about six years ago. It was uh, Ben Stern, and he was talking about everything that I never really thought about. He talked about the ghetto, how the Jewish people were tricked into the labor camps, thinking it was like for work. One thing that he brought up that kind of moved or did move me was he showed us his tattoo from the camp. His number, his serial number. And, you know, someone asked him, like, have you ever thought about getting that removed? And he said, absolutely not. He's like, this is my identity. I went through this and I don't want to forget this. So I want to go on the theme of identity. So for him, you that was his identity. And you've mentioned that some of your patients said, you know, help me remove some of these memories. And you said no, because that's like who you are. So can you maybe talk about your own personal identity? Because I know you've said, you know, you basically grew up with a family that was blonde and blue eyed. Um, and you didn't really know you, were, you didn't know you were Jewish until later on. So can you talk about that, your identity growing up? Yes, of course. Of course. <clears throat> My identity was very confused because I was in hiding during a period of great danger. Okay. Um, and did not associate that with Jewishness at all because I did not yet know I was one. Mm-hmm. And uh, <clears throat> and uh, interestingly, when I joined uh, my uh, Jewish parents, uh, the best school on the block uh, where we moved to was in a church down the street. And I uh, went to a Catholic kindergarten. And I became an absolutely outstanding Catholic. Uh, I was such a good student, uh, I thought, uh, that I was being rewarded with uh, pictures of Jesus to take home. And the Mother Superior paid a lot of attention to me. And much later in life, I thought, maybe I wasn't such a good student, um, but I was uh, a hoped-for conversion. That's why I got all the attention. Uh, at any rate, I became a really good Catholic, and my parents humored me uh, on that one because uh, they certainly had taken a, a body blow to their faith as pre-war Orthodox Jews. So, uh, so now I was really confused because my parents then got me a Hebrew teacher suddenly at about age seven. And now I was studying Hebrew as if I were Jewish, right? And uh, I discovered during that uh, period that uh, I wasn't able to learn anything that had to do with Judaism. And uh, again, only figured out later in life, I was studying with Mr. Krakauer, who was a concentration camp survivor. And uh, uh, we didn't know which of us was the more depressed. So I was studying with a depressed man. I could learn anything at school. 
this I could not learn from him. Uh, what, what brought me back to Judaism was arriving uh, to Canada and joining the uh, Jewish organization called Habudim, which is evil uh, for the Gilders. And it was a wonderful youth organization that had camping experiences uh, here in the Gulf Islands, which are very beautiful. And uh, the leaders, uh, some would come from Israel and be Israel Force, Defense Force members, and they would inspire the love of Israel, which they succeeded in with me, um, as with almost all Holocaust survivors who were so proud of the state of Israel and uh, so upset uh, with the fact that the world still does not feel there is a place for a Jewish state, but uh, we do. And uh, so my Judaism came back to me in bits and pieces, and, uh, and uh, over time I learned a little more and uh, find that a tradition that is just filled with values and inspiration, much of what I do is motivated by being Jewish. Uh, I always remember Elie Wiesel, and I'm not sure you would be familiar with him. He was a Nobel Peace Prize winner um, who came out of Auschwitz and Buchenwald. And Elie Wiesel uh, did great good in the world. Um, really, it's an inspirational figure. Um, he knew every U.S. president who consulted with him because he was experienced and wise. Uh, and uh, he went all around the world to warn people of genocides or go to places where genocide was taking place to try to interfere, to try and let the world know what was going on. That was his mission. Uh, but what inspired me about that uh, was he said, uh, if I am in Cambodia to war, I am here as a Jew. Uh, same when he went to Bosnia, Serbian, Croatian, wars, uh, you know, so he did. And I, I feel that much of what I do, which I hope uh, some of it has been good, is uh, as a person of my Jewish faith. I represent Jews. And I think it's, you know, very valuable that we hear all these stories. Like I said, I didn't hear a Holocaust story until I was maybe in college. Mm -hmm. And so... The fact that I kind of just, you know, heard about the Holocaust a little bit in school, but didn't truly understand it until as a young adult. And I think it's valuable to hear these stories. And one thing that, you know, kind of gets to me is the tactics that the Nazis used on the Jewish people, the psychological tactics that they used. You mentioned, you know, Buchenwald and on the gates they have, I'm going to mispronounce this, but it's a Jedem das Zeine, which means you know, kind of like, you deserve this. So imagine being a Jewish person seeing this at the gate, like you deserve this, everything that is happening to you. With your patience, did you ever get a sense of that, that they maybe still had that feeling that everything that was like happening, they deserved? Um, I, I, I don't think that they ever thought they deserved what they experienced and what they saw. In fact, um, those who survived to the end in and around liberation 
said, when the world sees what was done to us, in other words, it wasn't deserved, what was done was so horrific, surely they will never allow such things to happen again when they see us. And of course, that has been one of the greatest disappointments um, for those who survived is to see uh, what has happened over and over and over again, um, particularly uh, in these days. You know, our hearts bleed over many things because of it. So, uh, you know, if you want to look at contemporary situations, say separating children at the border, terrifying. Mm -hmm. That is terrifying because we know we were separated. Right. We were taken away. In our situation, everything was taken away and everyone was taken away. But to a child, any child, forcibly separated from parents, that is, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid that begins to be the, the start of their traumatic memory with which they will live for a lifetime. And uh, it's harder to live that lifetime all the way through as a consequence of such, such actions. Uh, so when I see how little we have learned on the whole, it's just, uh, it's just terrible. Genocides. I was just thinking about modern education of the Holocaust, and we hear about the liberation, but not really the journey nor the stories of the survivors. I mean, I was about 19 until I heard my first Holocaust survivor story. So is there something that maybe we can all learn from these stories? Um, well, uh, first of all, I, I, I'm really, I, I'm so proud of Holocaust survivors because um, uh, there was a time in the 1970s, it was very difficult to uh, have them involved in telling their stories. Uh, but once they started, they have never stopped. And, and uh, I, I, I'm really so proud of that effort uh, of them to try and teach. And then the attitude towards survivors for a period of time changed dramatically. Um, there was a great interest that developed once they were out there uh, speaking and trying to send uh, their messages. Um, and now there is an outpouring of memoirs being written because it is truly the last gasp uh, because even child survivors are now in their 80s and early 90s. And what is their message? Uh, uh, the message is relatively simple because it is primarily an anti-racist, anti-prejudice message. And God knows we see our societies all struggle with this in massive ways. What is, what is so disappointing is the absence of memory, historical memory. We know that when the Holocaust is denied, 
it is because anti-Semites are at work. All right? Mm -hmm. And a non-Jew should see the denial of the Holocaust as very dangerous to himself or herself because we do not know where prejudice will turn against what group of people. Are people with blue eyes next rather than brown eyes? We don't, we don't know. What, you do. what we do know about anti-Semitism is that it warns a society against a certain kind of breakdown. When that certain kind of breakdown takes place, there is nothing in its path to stop it except the goodwill of other people, of those who are decent and well-disposed. To people like the monks, <laughs> the monks. Yeah, yeah, if you had a ton of those, it could, it could stop some of this. Uh, sadly, uh, anti-Semitism is seen to be a problem of the Jews. Well, that's, that's not so. Wherever anti-Semitism has broken out, someone is next. So, for example, in Europe, where the Germans were very, very busy killing all the Jews in Europe, they were also busy next on the Polish people, the Slavic people, okay, who had at first been pretty interested in collaborating and uh, were not uh, beyond participating in killing. And they were next. And a million of them ended up in concentration camps. More of them survived, survived, but God knows they were traumatized when they returned to their homes. Uh, I believe uh, the Germans uh, did not have great respect for soldiers. They didn't abide by uh, the rules of warfare and murdered some two million Soviet soldiers who were their prisoners. It doesn't stop. It doesn't stop once it starts. So when we see it happening in Canada and the United States, you know, um, it saddens me greatly that people don't rise up against the anti-Semitism, especially because I know that those who are not rising up are next. And we have seen that. We've seen that in our own societies, and we're the most progressive societies. But remember the lesson of Germany. That was the most civilized nation of its time. Uh, Americans uh, would go over there to uh, get their professorships. Medicine and law were at its peak in terms of uh, progress and advancement, and yet it only took three years, four years to... Uh, pervert the entire system of law in Germany to write to Nuremberg. So we are coming up on the hour and I want to be respectful of your time. I'm sure we could talk about this for hours and I just want to thank you for sharing your story and I'm sure there's much more to it. So with that being said, are there any final messages or any final lessons that we can all learn from your story and the stories of the Holocaust survivors? Uh, well, the, you know, we were talking about the nuances, really, weren't we? Uh, a message for this time would be 
don't buy everything that one side provides. Don't buy everything that the other provides. There's information out there. There's learning to be done. Why not pick up a book on the Holocaust and familiarize yourselves with it? Um, why not pick up a companion uh, to that that discusses uh, genocide on a wider basis, but informed by the work of Holocaust scholars? Uh, it would uh, it would be a uh, extraordinary help um, to your thinking about your safety your children and grandchildren's safety to engage with this subject because I have a complaint about the United States and Canada. My complaint is there seems to me a lack of historical awareness. Even the presidencies start with foreign policy as if there hadn't been one before. And uh, re reinventing these massive approaches to dealing with people is uh, is dangerous without context, and so uh, these things require education and they require study and consideration. And, uh, and there is absolutely no substitute for the one admonition I've heard every survivor, just about who speaks, that after revealing their extraordinary journeys all end up saying something be kind to one another. They recognize how brief our stay is in the context of the world. Okay? We who survived are lucky to have added some years onto our stay and it's still only a blink. An eye blink of a moment and uh, why in the world would we think we were placed in the world to do what people are capable of doing to each other? Why not try the other, the other method, kindness? It would go a long way to solving many of the problems because we all know what it means to be kind to one another is exactly the way we wish to be treated. Wow. Some... Some powerful words, Dr. Crow. I, uh, once again, I, I really do appreciate you coming on and uh, sharing your story with me. Thank you, Eric. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining me on another episode of Behind the White Coat. I would like to thank David DeRoche for his guidance and the Quinnipiac University Podcast Studio for their support please make sure you subscribe either on iTunes or Spotify so you can get notified when the next episode is released. Thank you for your time, and I hope you enjoyed this episode.